0: Well, good morning Park Hills. It is good to be with you. Your pastors have paid me the highest compliment. Um, when a preacher is invited back for a second time to come to a church, that is the nicest thing you can say about someone. So if you believe this is an error, I believe you can submit any uh, complaints to Kim. I think she runs things around here. So please um, forward those to her. Um, by one way of encouragement, I want to... We've recently had one of your own, Ariel, as our front desk person, and I know her personality is she is, she is horrified that I'm making mention of her right now at all. Um, but she is so faithful. She has been such a blessing on staff, and she's been so helpful in general. But the thing that stands most... Um, about you, Ariel, is your, is your character and your godliness. She is always trying to speak of, of God and have conversations in the office that are oriented around who God is and his goodness. And so, thank you, Ariel. I just wanted to encourage you in that way. Um, let me read for us this morning our text, and then we will pray and we will launch into God's word for us this morning. Please, in your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 14 if you have not already We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, "'Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you.' "'Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel.' And tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold... I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and any who die in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. And root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, and came to Tirzah. And as she came into the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him. ...according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. And yet, this word is obscure. It seems harsh. And Lord, we want to know what it points to. What are we to see to glory in you and to be thankful for the salvation you are bringing in Christ... Lord, would you be with your servant this morning, and would you be with us that we might consider all that your word has for us this morning in First Kings chapter 14. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, in Center Reach, New York, there is a church and school called Our Savior New American School, and it bears a very uncanny resemblance, if you've ever driven by high point, to the Our Savior Lutheran School that is right outside of our building. I went to this school for four years of high school, and I was saved under the preaching of the youth pastor at the time, Bert Crabb, who told me that I could be saved from my sins, that I could have a relationship with God if I put my faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, I am forever thankful for God using Pastor Bert. At this school, I became very close with one of the sons of the pastors and headmaster of the school. His name was Peter Stelzer. Now, I mention him because I am thinking many of you had a friend or know the kind of friend that Peter was. Pete was the kind of friend who thinks it would be fun to test shooting bottle rockets at one another just to see what would happen. Well, every year we would go on a retreat and all of the youth of the church would gather with their families at this uh, retreat center and Peter had been going there for years and so he acted like he owned the place. And so on a particular afternoon, he thought it would be hilarious if the box that he found in this building, which could fit two or three people inside of it, if we just put it at the top of the cabin stairs, a couple of us load into it. bottom. Peter taught me sometimes the journey is more important than the destination. Doing these things with my good friend Pete did not always end well. Sometimes it was fun and no trouble would come of it, but most of the time we either got detention, I ended up with a broken limb, or a chipped tooth might be the place that we were going. But if you hung around Pete long enough, you would hear a common refrain from authority and parents and his peers. Pete, what on earth were you thinking? <laughs> well, today we are looking at the judgment and the curse that was placed upon the house of Jeroboam and the consequence of his many sins. If I had a time machine and I was able to talk to biblical characters, I think the thing I would ask King Jeroboam is, King Jeroboam, what were you thinking? When you read about Jeroboam's life in the scriptures, I don't think you can but scratch your head and wonder what in the world was this man thinking. And so to appreciate chapter 14 this morning, please allow me a brief moment to give you context of what happened right before it. It is really very important that you understand how we got here So you can understand what God is doing in chapter 14. Most of you know who King David is. I believe you are going through 2 Samuel now, is that correct? Okay. So you already know that David was a man after God's own heart, and God promised that David would always have a king that would be on the throne, and that he would establish his kingdom forever. Well, his son Solomon comes along, and his wisdom is like no other, and he builds the house the lord that god did not permit david to build and despite his immense wisdom the riches and the promise that god would be with him solomon's achilles heel was foreign women he could not keep himself from taking hundreds of wives and concubines from the other nations which then led him to worship and follow after their gods did then turn his heart away from yahweh Because Solomon did not wholeheartedly obey the Lord, God told him that he would give the kingdom to one of his servants. Enter in now Jeroboam. Ahijah the prophet tells Jeroboam the kingdom would be stripped from Solomon and the ten tribes of Israel would go over to him and that the nation of Israel would be separated into the northern and southern kingdoms. Jeroboam at this time was nothing more than a very industrious, able servant in the kingdom charged with keeping the forced labor in Israel. Yet, he had somehow been selected by the Lord, and God said to him through the prophet Ahijah, if you follow me, if you obey me, if you are like my servant David, then I will build for you an everlasting house. He would establish Jeroboam forever and give Israel to him. And you can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 11. Well, lo and behold, the word of the Lord comes true through no doing of Jeroboam, but Solomon's son Rehoboam follows some bad counsel, and he loses face with the northern kingdom, and he makes their burdens worse. And the people turned to Jeroboam to be their leader and their king, all as the Lord had spoken. Now, if you are King Jeroboam, what would you be thinking at this moment? This God of Israel guy, he's the real McCoy. He told me exactly what would happen. What an opportunity I have to reestablish Israel under his rule, his statutes, to gain his favor to follow him and to know what he would command. But that's not how the story goes. Almost immediately after Jeroboam comes to power, he institutes some plans of his own to fortify his position, his leadership, and his power. His first recorded act of king, as king in chapter 12 was to create a religion. Verse 28 says... So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. My goodness, Jeroboam, what are you thinking? But he did not stop there. He appointed priests. He made holidays. He appointed new feasts. He offered sacrifice and offerings to these metal images. And he made the people of God worship them. All of which scripture says he had devised from his own heart. But it gets worse. In chapter 13, God confronts Jeroboam through an unnamed prophet. The prophet warns Jeroboam of his sin and the coming consequences. And to prove it, when Jeroboam raises his arm to say, seize that man, his arm withers before the people. As the millennials say, it got all jacked up, right? And so he says to the prophet, please beg of your God to do something. And so in chapter 13, verse 6, he says, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Jeroboam gets a second chance. God sends a warning prophet. Surely at this point, Jeroboam is putting two and two together. The God of Israel. He ain't playing around best not make him mad best to repent best to turn to him and seek his counsel get rid of this phony baloney religion that i've been promoting you would think he learned his lesson but we sadly read in the verse verses directly preceding chapter 14 after this thing after the the healing of his hand Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin in the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off, to destroy it from the face of the earth. I ask the question again, Jeroboam, what were you thinking. Point number one, the God of Israel is not a God to be trifled with. To trifle with something or someone is to not show it proper seriousness or respect for the thing or the person. When I was in middle school, um, I learned this the hard way, that my mother is not someone to be trifled with. You see, I once disrupted my 8th grade science class by spraying my water bottle over a classmate that I did not like, Stephen Hirsch. For this, I got detention, and rightfully so. But to lessen my sin in the eyes of my mother, I thought I would tell a lie. I told her that Stephen was a bully, that he did not like me, that the whole thing was a misunderstanding because the science teacher had not actually seen what had occurred but that I would face this shame, I would serve this detention time, it wasn't worth remedying the situation. Well, my mother knows a liar when she sees one, and she took it upon herself to then find out when this science class was, go up to the school on that day, pull out several of my classmates, and interrogate them for the events that actually led to her son getting this detention. Let's just say, on that day, I received a judgment far worse than any middle school detention. Well, the God of Israel is not a God to be trifled with. Verse 1 opens with an ominous detail. The firstborn of Jeroboam, heir to the throne, prince of Israel, Abijah, falls sick. Based on the details of the story, this is not any Kind of sickness. We learn that this is a preamble to the judgment that God will pour out onto the house of Jeroboam for his sins. Jeroboam and his wife are very aware that their child is on death's door. Now you would think Jeroboam would turn to the Lord, seek his favor, that he would discern the error of his ways. But Jeroboam, as we have clearly seen, is not thinking with any level of reason or clarity. Instead, he says, sweetie, I want you to arise and disguise yourself and go to Shiloh and to meet with the prophet Ahijah. Perhaps you remember his name. The reason that we're here is because he told us that we would become king and queen of Israel. Maybe we can find out from him what is going to happen to Abijah. Well, notice that Jeroboam does not consult his gods, his religion. His priests, his prophets. But he goes rather the one guy who correctly and accurately predicted their future. So his wife puts on the disguise. And she takes with her, according to verse 3, a poor man's offering to the prophet. Because she couldn't come with jewels and, and fine gifts, because that would expose who she was. She's trying to sell her character, hoping to get an accurate word of what will happen to their son. But she is adding insult to injury by trying to deceive God and his prophet with a Halloween costume. To further add irony to the story, Ahijah the prophet is old and his eyesight is terrible. We see this at the end of verse 4. Even if she had come with her royal garb decked out, Ahijah most likely would not have been able to tell the difference between a donkey or a stallion. His eyesight is bad. The disguise does nothing. And the Lord, of course, is aware of what is taking place. He speaks to Ahijah in verse 5 and tells him what to say to Jeroboam's wife when she arrives. Jeroboam's wife comes. She's in full character. She enters into the house And immediately, the scripture says, at the sound of her footsteps, and I'm not really sure how the prophet did this, Abijah knows exactly who's at the door. Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? I am charged with giving you unbearable news. What's the unbearable news? It comes to us in four parts. The first part is, in verse 10, God will cut off every male from the house of Jeroboam. Not only will all in the house of Jeroboam die, but there will be no royal dynasty. There will be no ancestors to Jeroboam. Anyone belonging to the wicked house of Jeroboam will be utterly wiped off the face of the earth. Let me tell you, if you decide to do a genetic test, 23 and me, you will not find your lineage going anywhere back to Jeroboam. He was utterly annihilated. No descendants. And I can't put to you how strongly God speaks this word against Jeroboam. The language of Scripture is so harsh that almost all Bible translations sanitize the original language when they write in verse 10, every male both bond and free. I'm not saying that that's a wrong translation. I'm just saying they've sanitized it. It's actually a euphemism. Because if you translate the language verbatim, what it actually says is, to all those who urinate against the wall, you will be burned up like a man burns feces. Yikes. If someone insults you like that, they're clearly very upset, right? But the crazier part is this is not just some random person. This is God. God is communicating this way. He is essentially saying you are nothing more than a heaping pile of burning dung. God is not mincing his words. He is not, in no uncertain terms, communicating how little he thinks of Jeroboam's house. The second thing that we see is not only will all the house of Jeroboam die, as if that's not bad enough, God also indicates that none of those who die will have a proper burial. Rather, their bodies will be eaten, licked up, pecked at, by dogs in the city and birds in the air of the open country. Now, if you know your Bible, that language is reminiscent of the curses that would come on the people of God if they broke their covenant with Yahweh in Deuteronomy 28:26. Your dead bodies shall be food for all birds of the air and beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Culturally, when a person dies, it would be a sign of honor and an indicator of a good life to have a proper burial to rest with one's fathers, to be mourned over. That would have been a sign of the good life. It would have been an indication of a perhaps blessed life to come. The third thing we see is in verse 12. When Jeroboam's wife returns, it says that her son will immediately die. And the one sliver of redeeming news is that this male child, this male only, will be buried well. And he will be mourned over by the people, which we will address here shortly. The fourth and final thing, the final stage of this prophecy is ending that not only will another king rise up to take Jeroboam's place, but Israel herself will experience the judgment and wrath of God for her idolatry, that God would root up Israel, scatter them, and give her up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, and you can see that in verses 14 through 16. Now, some commentaries make notice of these themes, and what they call them is a reverse Passover, a reverse exodus. You see, instead of a father covering the door with the blood of the lamb that will save the firstborn in the house, it is the father's sin and the blood on his hands that caused the death of the son. Moreover, Jeroboam's wife, entering through the doorframe of her house, will not bring life and salvation, but death and judgment. Instead of Israel crossing over the River Jordan into the Promised Land to rejoice in their freedom from slavery, injustice, and oppression, to worship their saving God, instead they will cross another river, the River Euphrates, prophesying their removal from the land, an exile, and a return to slavery because they turned away from worshiping rightly the God who saved them in Egypt. At this point, is this not truly unbearable news? What are we to think about this? Point number one, the God of Israel is not a God to be trifled with, Point number two, the God of Israel is a God who keeps his word. We have an expression we use sometimes to describe someone who sounds harsh but won't really follow up with what they said. We say, they are all bark, no bite. Parents, we unfortunately sometimes do this with our children, do we not? We tell them that if they do not behave, if they do not obey, we will take them home we will leave the restaurant. We will abandon the amusement park. But really, that is all bark and no bite because we're not going to leave the chicken fingers behind and we're not going to get our money's worth for the overpriced ticket that we paid. So we are essentially using fear mongering to try to manipulate our children to do what we want them to do. Which, while we are on the subject, this is not part of the application of the sermon, but don't do that right that's just not a good parenting methodology don't you know threaten your children but not actually follow if you're going to leave the amusement park leave the amusement park that will make them remember it's a good lesson but don't pretend in a very good way god is nothing like us the god of israel is a god who keeps his word know therefore that the lord your god is a god the faithful god who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him keep his commandments to a thousand generations, Deuteronomy 7, 9. We would all yes and amen that verse. We like that part. But what does verse 10 say directly after it? And Yahweh repays to their face those who hate him. By destroying them, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Usually we don't read that second part. We just stick with verse 9. What was it God had told Jeroboam? And how has it come to this now that Jeroboam and his entire house is in no uncertain terms condemned and cursed? He tells us in verses 7 and 9. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, Yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you. You have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images. You have provoked me to anger, and you have cast me behind your back. That is why Jeroboam is experiencing. So let's review chapter 11, Jeroboam becomes aware that the reason he is going to inherit the entire kingdom of Israel is because of Solomon's sin of worshiping other foreign deities. But not only did he immediately fail to follow God after he was given the kingdom, even though God kept his end of the bargain, he sinned worse than Solomon did. And he made up a religion to turn away God's people. And if that wasn't worthy of him immediately losing his job, the Lord sent another prophet to warn him. No doubt he was offering an olive branch to Jeroboam. He had the opportunity to repent from his folly. But Jeroboam returned again to his sin as if God had done none of that. Jeroboam has not just spurned the Lord's kindness. He has not just marginalized and failed to see God's mercy. He has not just succumbed to idol worship in his heart. Verse 9 says, Jeroboam utterly cast God behind his back. This man did not just cast God aside. He cast him utterly from his view. He did not care for God at all. He did not once seek his counsel. He did not once seek forgiveness. He did not once consider the errors of his ways. He did not once thank God for his blessing and position. Jeroboam utterly despised the Lord and blatantly made Yahweh nothing in his eyes. He trifled with the God of Israel. He esteemed his words to be less than nothing. And for this, the Lord's anger was rightfully provoked and judgment must be rendered because the God of Israel is a God of his word. He will not be trifled with. He cares that his word is obeyed and his people follow him according to that word. Friends, I ask you this morning, what are you thinking? Is the crescendoing application for this sermon to tell you all not to be like Jeroboam? Could we not together list all of Jeroboam's sins, analyze them, and then I tell you to turn from those kinds of things lest the wrath of God and these curses find us? But in all truth, that would not do me or you any good. You see, I cannot tell you to try not to be like Jeroboam because we are all already like Jeroboam. Brothers and sisters, we most likely daily, more than we realize, despise the word and counsel of God. We daily forget God's blessings and forget all of his gracious deeds toward us. We are all guilty of, at one point or another, putting on disguises of outward faith and piety and then go home and remove them and carry forth what our hearts really desire, thinking that we have fooled others and God. Generally speaking, we are all living out of our own designs for our life, and we each turn to various idols that we worship in our hearts And we seek counsel from them way before we go to God. Only when they prove to fail because they cannot save and because they are not real, do we then go and call upon God and ask him, Would you remedy this for me, please? Rarely do we ask what got us here. Rarely do we consider the ways God has attempted to keep us from that sin and its consequences of our situation. All we want to know is, God, what are you going to do about it now? How are you going to bail us out? How are you going to make yourself look right in my eyes? You see, we would rather have our answer to theological questions and concerns, our our curiosity satisfied, have our needs met, than to actually come to the Lord and ask what he might want or require from us. Rarely do we ask what might we need to repent of or be forgiven of, and what might be required of us to cut off a particular sin and to make things right. We presume upon the Lord to always get us out of the bind but having little to no intention to actually living differently when he does. I'm not saying that some among us are not genuinely seeking the Lord, that's not what I'm saying, or that we can't have moments of authenticity with God in our walk. I'm saying that for the most part, if I'm being honest with myself, on my bad days, I am worse than Jeroboam. And that on my best days, I am probably just as bad as Jeroboam. You see, I'm a sinner. And while my list of sins don't look exactly like Jeroboam's, I can tell you now that I would be utterly horrified if Scripture, which you set aside a page for me, describing, detailing, and recording all of my sin for someone to do a sermon exegesis on, I am convinced, apart from the daily protection and intervention of my God, I would be hell bent on casting him behind my back. Jeroboam and his wife cared not why their son had become sick, and they did not even appeal to God for help. They only cared about the information that would satiate their curiosity of what would happen to him. And then what would happen to them? They would attempt to get God's honest answer by mocking his wisdom, tricking his prophet, downplaying his omniscience by playing dress up to deceive him to get it. I wonder how many of us are guilty of walking in this morning with similar disguises ourselves, presuming upon the Lord all the while spurting his commands and casting him behind our backs. The reality is we are more like Jeroboam than we could ever know or admit. And we are already sentenced and judged by our wickedness and our immorality because I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done or what you have not done, there is easily enough sin in your life to warrant the same condemnation and judgment of Jeroboam. But, there's a silver lining in the midst of all of that unbearable news. And that is the good news, that point number three, the God of Israel saves whomever pleases him. God's word, every word, of his prophecy to Jeroboam came true. The child died when Jeroboam's wife went home and entered her house. According to Second Chronicles 13.20, the Lord struck down Jeroboam, and in less than one generation, in one chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 15.29, we read, and as soon as he was king, that is King Basha, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the Shilonite. The final part of the prophecy would be fulfilled 180 years later when Israel would be deported by the Assyrians. God is not to be trifled with, and he is not helpless or unable to do all that he speaks. What the Lord says will happen, it's not a maybe. It's not left to a high chance of probability. What the Lord says will come to pass, will come to pass. And unless the God of Israel grants a word of pardon to override something that he's previously spoken, there should be no doubt that God will bring about the things which he speaks. But there's a very important detail I have left obscured thus far in the story, and I'd like to now read it for you. Please follow along in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 14. Arise, therefore, go to your house, speaking to the wife of Jeroboam. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. In the midst of such unbearable news, church, there is unimaginable good news for God's people. That despite our sins, despite our shortcomings, our idolatry our waywardness, our disguises, our foolish hearts. God can save those he is pleased with. That's the conclusion I believe we're supposed to draw from verse 13. God promised that this child in the house of Jeroboam would be spared the curse, that he would have a proper burial, a proper funeral, and he would be mourned by the nation. You see, despite all the sin in the house of Jeroboam, the Lord had done something in Abijah. He was showing one in the house of Jeroboam undeserved mercy. Now, if you have been following with me, and you've been a very, very good audience, if you have any conviction... Any stirring in your heart, any desire to turn from your sin, to be saved, to be restored to this God, and to escape the curses, the penalty, and the judgment your sins rightly deserve, because God is a God of his word, and we do not want to mock him, and he should not be trifled with, you must be wondering, what did Abijah do? What did he do that he was pleasing in the sight of God? The answer to that is simply, we don't know. We don't know. And I believe we don't know in the text for a very good reason. Hear me out. Because no matter what way you slice this story, for there to be a good child that found favor in the house of Jeroboam, something that was pleasing to the Lord, in a house of such rampant idolatry and evil, is nothing short of divine grace and divine intervention. No description is given to us about Abijah other than his condition and his name and God's smiling countenance upon him. He has no merits, he has no acts of piety, no indication of his attitude even toward God and the things of God. There is nothing that I can point you in this text or anywhere else in Scripture about Abijah that you could emulate, that we can copycat, or that we might do so that we can be found pleasing in God's eyes. And I think that is intentional. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And He has mercy upon whom He has mercy, and compassion upon whom He has compassion. Romans 9.18 So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. There is no action you can take. There is no calculus you can learn. There is no code that you can crack so that you can do something to get God to be pleased with you in and of yourself. Nothing. Romans chapter 3 says, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. But beginning in verse 21, we get this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness about it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Jesus. This young boy is made sick by God in order that he might deliver him from being included in the judgment of God on his family. In God's hand, he both used the child as a means to illustrate the great consequence of sin and Jeroboam's evil but also his divine mercy and love by saving him from the judgment that would befall the rest of his family. Is that not what we see in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that not what we see God the Father doing, taking his one and only Son, spotless, blameless, pleasing in his eyes, and nailing him to the cross to pay the penalty of our deception, our idolatry, and our turning our backs on him. That anyone who puts their faith in this son would also be pleasing in the father's eyes. God had to take Jeroboam's son's life in order to save him from the destruction of his father's house. God the Father sends his son to die in order to bring many sons to glory, to save them from the consequences and destruction of their sin and is now preparing them an eternal home with him forever. Abijah pictures not only the justice of God, but his divine mercy and grace. Abijah foreshadows another son who will marry the image of God's perfect justice with his perfect mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is both the one who takes upon himself the sins of God's people to satisfy the justice and wrath of God toward them, but also embodies God's infinite, unmerited mercy and grace to those who put their faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. Church, that is good news. That is something to rejoice in, for you are made pleasing to God by the perfect righteousness of his Son. And he can, and he is now able to save you too the uttermost. The gospel includes not only the unbearable news of what our sins have done to separate us from God. We do stand utterly guilty before him, and our sentence is deserving nothing less than death, judgment, and condemnation. But the good news is that God has made intercession, and he made us pleasing before his eyes through the redemption of his Son, Jesus Christ, in order that we might be spared from the wrath and have eternal life with him. We rejoice because God is pleased to save those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, Christ and Christ alone. John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, rejoice that God took mercy upon you and has made you pleasing in his sight, that he is saving you from the wrath to come that your sins rightfully deserved. He did this apart from you, He did this despite you. We love because he first loved us. And if you have not believed on the Lord, Jesus Christ, I humbly ask if you are trifling with God. Are you mocking God in his patience with you? Are you taking lightly the sins that he will one day have to judge? Are you spurning him at this very moment, And doing everything in your power to cast him behind your back. I would then implore you to see the message and the good news of the gospel. The gift of God's favor. Turn away from your sin. Heed the word of the Lord. Do not wait until the last day when you have to stand before him as judge. And he says, what on earth were you thinking? Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. Seek him while he still may be found. Allow him to make you pleasing in the eyes of his heavenly Father. The God of Israel is not a God to be trifled with. The God of Israel is a God who keeps his word. And the God of Israel saves whomever pleases him. As a closing thought, do you know what Abijah means? In Hebrew, we see it a bunch of times in the scriptures. The name means, Yahweh is my father. Abijah's earthly father's sins were the reason for his untimely death. But Abijah's heavenly father delighted to pardon Abijah's sin so that he might enjoy eternal life because something was found pleasing. the eyes of God in Abijah let us close by reading Isaiah 46 8 through 11 I will read it out loud for us remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we desire to fear you, to come before you humbly, to recognize that you are the God of all creation that you are the God of Israel, and that you are not to be trifled with, and your word always holds true. Your word says that anyone who puts their faith in your son Jesus Christ will be saved, will be ransomed. And Lord, we ask that you would do something by making us pleasing in your sight. Do what we cannot do for ourselves. We cast ourselves upon you and you alone. Give us Christ. Show us Christ. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.